Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Our guest today is Shane Elliott, the CEO of ANZ Bank, and caring for his colleagues and customers is very important to him. He dedicates a lot of time to helping his executive team to connect and support each other, and he sees this as being critical for high performance. Purpose is very important to Shane, and when he was CFO of ANZ, he led a project to articulate what ANZ's purpose was. It was a long process, but he believes it was well-received because it didn't come from him, but from all employees. Not long after he was promoted to CEO, he was summoned to appear before the Banking Royal Commission and answer complaints from many, many years before. It was a very stressful time, but it would have been very easy to blame previous administrations. But he and his chairman, David Gonski, chose to treat this challenge as a learning opportunity and providing opportunities to grow. Not surprisingly, he's a big fan of Carol Dweck's work that advocates for a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. Following on from the Royal Commission, they really doubled down on their new purpose so as not to avoid mistakes from before. Their purpose is to shape a world where people and communities thrive. He is a self-confessed introvert and a very broad reader. And I think you'll be surprised by a couple of books he gifts to colleagues and friends. He provides some very practical advice for any leader who wants to build a team culture of care and high performance. Shane grew up in Auckland with a father who was a builder and he was actually born in a garage. Yes, that's right, a garage, which was where the family lived while his father built their first house. At school, he had plans to train to be a teacher, but was encouraged by his English teacher to go to university and never look back. His three favorite singer-songwriters may surprise you, but they are all artists that evolved and grown, which isn't surprising. As you'll see, this is a wide-ranging conversation with many golden nuggets. Enjoy. It's a great pleasure to welcome Shane Elliott to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Shane. Thanks for having me. Shane, what does care in the workplace mean to you? Well, that's a big question. Um, I think you have to go back to our purpose as a company, and which is to shape a world where people and communities thrive. And therefore, that implies a lot of care, actually, both about our own people, our customers, and, and, and in the broader community. And so I think it, it sort of means being thoughtful and, and considering the implications of decisions that you're making. And hopefully that, you know, hopefully that they're aligned with that greater purpose. Yeah, and I also notice there's a second part to your purpose, which is about uh, you want your people to thrive just as much as your customers. What's the background behind that? Well, we've got a lot of people, right? So <laughs> they're, part of, they're part of the community too. And, you know, at the end of the day, what we do as a bank is relatively commoditized. And so, you know, being sort of utilitarian about it. Our customers really only buying a couple of things, right? They buy our, our our ability to do what we said we would do, you know, move money where they wanted or, you know, et cetera. But they're really buying our people. And our people actually embody that that purpose and and that culture and, and the values. And therefore it's kind of an integral part of our business model, if if you will. 
Yeah, I was speaking to your group executive for technology, Jared Florian, and he mentioned that the first discussion with you for 30 minutes was about purpose. It wasn't about technology. It's obviously very important to you. This is a critical part of the how, how you operate. Absolutely. I, you know, at the end of the, you know, we're an old company. We're 185 years old or thereabouts. Um, and we did some work some time ago. You know, what sustains companies? What, why? How do we get to be 180 years old and hopefully continue to thrive? And, at the end of the day, you you know, you come to that simplistic idea that your only sustainable point of difference or your only sustainable competitive advantage is your culture. And that culture really comes down in our case to that sense of purpose. And then what are all the things that you do to make that purpose a reality? So I do think that's, and I, you know, you know I've been working for 30 odd years. I think, you know, when you look back on achievements or things that you're proud of, in my mind, very rarely is it about the PL or a dividend or something like that. It's usually about um, embodying that, you know, that purpose and culture, you know, the people that you looked after, the customers that you made succeed, the, you know, all of those things, the impact that you had on the community. So I think that's really true, what the true measure of success for, for a large company, particularly for a large company is. I understand you started with that together in 2017. How do you go about, about embedding it? How how do you get it to live and breathe inside a company? Um, uh, well, actually, the interesting story about the purpose for us was it was a bit of a grounds up movement, actually, and it actually came out long prior to that when I was CFO. I just happened to be the sponsor of this executive development program, and you know we sent these, you know, smart people away. It was with a university, and they studied what makes companies great, and you know, competitive advantage, and all those sorts of things. And when they came back, they said, "Wow, we met all these companies: big, small, private companies, public companies, family businesses, listed businesses, and the really great ones all had the strong sense of purpose and why they exist." and Gee, we struggled a little bit at ANZ to describe what it was. So it was, because it was grassroots, not imposed by me, I think that had a much greater chance of success. And we just involved all of our people right from the very beginning in the whole thing, you know, mm-hmm. focus groups. It was, a, it was a coalition of the willing, if you will, within the organisation to say, hey, this is important. And then we took a couple of years to craft it. It wasn't something we did in a weekend or three months or literally took a couple of years of one of our uh, customers who we worked with was, Unilever, who was possibly the poster child a little bit for early adoption of this idea of purpose. And they, for me anyway, they encapsulated it really well. They said, look, it's not something you you make up. It's You're actually doing an archaeological dig. You're, you're going back and finding out through the history of Angel what, what, is the, what has been that purpose that has sustained it for so long. Clearly it's survived. Mm-hmm. There must be something doing something and thrive, so it must be doing something right. So it's you, you're looking back into the history to articulate what's there rather than, hey, let's whiteboard what a nice idea would sound like. And so that's really, I think, why it survived. One, the ground, you know, it was the grounds up. And two, it was actually finding reality as opposed to imposing some new um, idea on the, on the company. You may be familiar with uh, Viktor Frankl's work, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, one of the real seminal books about personal meaning and how it can make such a difference when you're going through tough times. And he said that uh, you don't create your purpose, you uncover it. And I think that's what you're just saying there, that it you know, really comes from the, the grassroots up to make a real difference. Yeah, it does. And, I, you know, COVID's a really great example, actually, of it and because you asked about embedding it. And we're still in that process, right? We have to make it core to everything we do and we have to show people that, it really, that you know, we, the, the leaders of the company, the board, the executives, whoever, uh, take it seriously and are willing to you know, in our language, do the right thing even when it comes at a cost because it's, it's our view is it's easy to do the right thing when it's free 
Um, it's when it comes at a cost or it's, or a trade-off. That's really when people know that hey, that's some um, that's important to you. COVID was a good example because you know, in a co- and I've you know I've been in banking for a long period of time, and banking and finance is characterised by particularly global organisations, which you know ANZ's in thirty odd countries, and my predecessor was in a hundred. My my predecessor company. There's always something going on, right? There's always a crisis of some sort, whether it's a natural disaster or a financial crisis or whatever, political crisis, there's something happening. Um, And in those times of crisis, people, I think, generally revert back to their core values to solve problems. Mm. You 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 are overwhelmed with information. You're overwhelmed with decisions. It's really difficult. There's no right or wrong answers. And so really... You go back, it's a, it's a little bit like religion. You sort of go back to the core. Mm. What do I fundamentally believe? And mm. in a company like us, it was, you know, it was about, well, what, what does our purpose guide us to do as opposed to the need to produce a quarterly financial result or, or hit some, you know, target we set six months ago when the world was different. So I think that was a really good example of it in action, and we saw that in, in reality. I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that you follow Satya Nadella. Why, from Microsoft, the global CEO of Microsoft, why, why did you um, choose to follow him? When, when we were thinking about, um, you know, we live in this world of constant change, like I just mentioned. Some of them we call crises, which are just extreme change. But we, our industry is going through constant change, and our view was that that would continue. You know, we're not, it's not going to stop. So you sort of have two choices in the world, how to deal with it. You either try to predict the future, which is pretty futile, but some do. You know, or you stand back and say, look, in the world, when in, in a world of fast change, the only way to survive and thrive is to be nimble. Mm. And so when you think about how to be nimble or agile as a company, we said there were three ingredients into that. One was the software. I'm using a computer analogy. One was the software, which is our people. And our might it's our in the intellect of our people. Are they are, do they have a growth mindset? Are they, you know, are they resilient? Are they curious and all those things? Yeah. The second was the hardware, our processes and systems. Can they be changed? Mm. Can we respond to new regulatory need? Can we respond to new customer needs in our technology and the processes? And the mm. third was the operating system. How do we knit the people and the systems together, you know, the yeah, way yeah. of working? The reason we got in t- touch with, and Microsoft's a customer and we're a customer of theirs and we've known them, well, not, not at a CEO level uh, historically. It was actually the work in that first part about growth mindset. So I've done work with Carol Dweck. I read the book. Mm. I spoke to Carol on a number of occasions, invited her down. She came down. She's presented to our people. And, and it was Carol who said, oh, you know, you should uh, meet with um, such an uh, Nadella at Microsoft. You know, you, your companies are at a very similar way of thinking about this. And so mm. I did. And I not only followed him on there, I reached out and, you know, we discussed what we were doing in growth mindset. And then we've actually connected our organisations around sharing, you know, sort of best practice. So that that's sort of a long story. A long-winded answer, but that's how that came about. I remember uh, I, I was I found on uh, YouTube Satya Nadella's opening speech when he became CEO, and one of the interesting things that he did there was to talk about you know he had children with learning difficulties and the and the um, the Microsoft resources were able to help them to learn much better. And he put the challenge out to all the other employees, you know, what, what problems do you want to solve? How can you use Microsoft, our technology and what have you, to solve problems you yep. do? And uh, and that was really the launch into, uh, you know, this this real purpose, and which is captured in his book, Refresh. 
And I've spoken to a couple of people um, who were at Microsoft. One, one is Steve Worrell and also um, Mark Fazio, who'd been there for a number of years. And they said that the, it was remarkable how quickly the culture changed. Like Mark Fazio was here in Australia and he said within six months there was just a substantial difference in the way that the company operated and its priorities. And uh, it, it is amazing, isn't it, how it can happen relatively quickly if there's the right mindset and it's done carefully as well. I totally agree. And I um, I think, you know, maybe it hasn't happened within six months here, but it's had the same impact here. And again, I think it's important. This wasn't imposed by me, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't an imposition from the leadership. Hey, we've got this new whiz-bang thing called purpose. We'd like you to do that. It was already there. It possibly wasn't very well articulated or coherent and it wasn't sort of tight so that people could actually understand what they're supposed to do and how to make decisions. And we didn't give them all the the scaffolding around it to say, actually, this is how we're going to run the company, right? Mm -hmm. Things we're going to measure. So I think that actually helped. I mean, I think our our, our, not analogy, sorry, but our similar story on that one is to do with, you know, financial well-being, which is, again, part of how do communities and people thrive as a role of a bank is being understanding money, understanding the importance of financial health, having the tools to be able to do that are really, really important. We sort of used a similar analogy for our own children. So we sat down and said, hey, if you were giving advice to a five-year-old, and we used a five-year-old deliberately, <laughs> you were giving advice to a five-year-old about what would you tell them? Mm. And so you'd tell them things like, hey, you should spend less than you earn. You should mm. save for a rainy day. You should protect the things you love. You know, that sort of thing, right? So we came up with these nine financial principles that we said that a five-year-old can understand. When we went and tested those with people, what we found is a great large population didn't understand those things at all and found them revolutionary. Right. <laughs> Even a simple idea of spending less than you earn. And then what we said is, okay, if that's how you should lead your life to be financially healthy, do our products and services enable that or do they get in the way? And what we found is that banks' products get in the way. They make that hard. But we said, what if you redesigned the bank and around actually making those things natural. Mm. And that's the process we're undertaking at the moment with our sort of re-engineering of the bank to say, hey, how do we make those things natural mm. outcomes of working with ANZ? Because we want to be able to say to our client, hey, if you bank with us, we can show you, we will help you improve your financial wellbeing and we can prove it. And so that's um, that's sort of our manifestation of that same idea uh, in terms mm. of making the company truly um, sort of purpose driven. I really love, you know, making it accessible to five-year-olds because, you know, it's often the simple language that really cuts through and, and you know, when we launched Are You OK and, and the tagline of conversation could change a life, you know, some people thought it was too simplistic but, uh, you know, everyone can relate to that conversation could change a life whether it's, a, you know, five-year-old, ten-year-old, just like change of language but uh, simple messages win, don't they, when there's lots well, of change? Well, people... You know, and again, we shouldn't, we're not speaking down to our customers or anything. The reality is that people are busy and people have a lot of things going on in their life, right? And people, you know, from our, people don't wake up in the morning thinking about, or generally, mm-hmm. about their financial situation. They might if they're under stress, but generally mm-hmm. uh, they don't think about banking or saving. Mm-hmm. You know, those, they've got, they've got things to do. And so we need to make those things easy and natural outcomes of the way they interact with us, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a bit, there's a massive gap here. And we're, we're not there yet. I mean, but we're not there yet. But that is this, those are the sorts of tools we're trying to put in the hands of our people. What's been interesting 
is that the the response of customers, I think, has been much stronger than we would have thought, mm-hmm. you know, because we get told by, you know, smart people that, you know, all people care about is price. We get, I'm not just talking about banking, a lot of services that people, people just care about the price of something. It doesn't actually hold water. I mean, price is important, and I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be competitive, but actually people do value services and products and things on a much broader basis than their people are not silly. They understand the value of relationship. They understand that certain counterparties or banks can help them get it get ahead mm. of and, and something. Mm. Mm. But yeah, I think it's been it's been a good again, good good articulation of purpose and um and reality. The other one, of course, was you sit back and you say, well, hang on, and because we're a big institutional bank, so we a lot of our, you know, about, I don't know, call it about 40% of our customers are big end of town multinationals, et cetera. Right? So what's the equivalent there um, was really about, well, how do we shape a world where people and communities thrive in, in that space was where we need to make sure that our customers are aligned with those values. Are their activities shaping a world where people and communities thrive or are they, or are they doing the wrong thing? And so that was led to things, for example, around our environmental policies to say, hey, clearly a thriving community needs a healthy physical environment. I mean, and, health and, and thriving people, that should go without saying. Do therefore that sort of shapes our, our policy around things like climate change yeah. and the transition. So we, now we don't have a big footprint ourselves, but our customers do. So we have to talk to our big customers and say, do you get it? Are you aligned with the the transition are you mm. doing the right thing and then are we as a bank providing services help nudges whatever to enable that to be faster and better so you set off on this noble path to really embed the the uh, the purpose and make it part of the dna and then in 2018 along came the royal commission and what was it like for you personally how did you feel being part of that it was it was extraordinarily difficult. I mean, I I was new. Like, I, I'd been two years in. Actually, the Royal Commission got announced in 2017, so I'd only been a year in the job in this as CEO. And so, and again, I'm not making excuses, but a lot of the stuff, the, the, what was in the Royal Commission, I, I wasn't even here in the company, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, and I certainly wasn't the CEO. Actually, so it's quite stressful, obviously. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would say two things uh, that came out of it, though. One, it was a brilliant learning opportunity. Um, didn't feel like it at the time, but in order for me, because I was going to be a witness, I had to be on top of all of that history, what had happened over that last 10 years in the bank and the industry, mm. where I would be a witness and you know, to um, in, a, in a court case, essentially, like a Royal Commission. So I had to go and do my homework. So it was actually a massive learning. So I went back and looked at all these things and had to uncover them all and be confident in the detail. So it was a massive learning opportunity for me, and I sort of learned well, how did these things happen? Why did, how did those things go wrong, uh, et cetera, which we can talk about? And then the second um, thing that came out of it, actually, in a funny way, it was extraordinarily um, enabling for us in terms of our purpose because it was actually a way to say to people, see what happens when, when you yeah. don't get this right? Yeah. So it was actually, in a funny way, well, it was a positive experience in that we were able to use a lot of those case studies and, and mm. what the ones that are our own but looking at others to talk to our people and make it real because otherwise these things they, you know the risk is always they sound well they sound nice don't they so you know mm. they're posters on a wall or things people wear around their neck and you know and then people just go about their normal lives at work and so this was a, a way to actually make it all quite real 
as you say, I, I can't imagine how stressful it would have been. How do you how do you prepare for that? How do you keep your stress under control when you're facing as as something as um, traumatic as that? How do you do it? So, good, well, you have to, you know, everybody's different. For me, you know, I know what works for me. So I go to the gym and I know I need to keep my weekends to my weekends and not, I, you know, I can't work seven days a week and all that. I, you know, I don't handle that very well. I have, a, you know, family. I've got a young, well, she's not that young anymore. She's only 17, I've got a daughter. So spending time with family, you know, those things de-stress me, right, keeping grounded. And I think the way we approached the Royal Commission was really important. So right at the beginning, we got the team, as we saw it at the time, in a room and said, look, we're going to go into this with a really, we're going to get back to our purpose here. Hmm. Where we're people in communities thrive. So we're going to go into this to be helpful. We're not going to defend the indefensible, right? So we're, we're going to be honest and we're going to contribute in a, with a positive mindset achieve the outcomes here which is how do we make our industry better for the community mm. and so I think I mean I didn't probably appreciate it at the time but after the fact many of the people you know my co-witnesses and other people in the bank would refer back and say well that gave me comfort because it, I I understood what my role was yeah mm. Because otherwise, without those things, you know what happens. People, you know, people are good people and they feel this need to protect, defend the company, mm. to defend things that were wrong, yeah, mm. to rationalise. And by giving them the freedom to say, no, no, we, that's not what we're doing here. Mm. It's not about A and Z versus the world. Mm. We're there to help and we're there to contribute to the dialogue and to, to, you know, enable the commission to make thoughtful, balanced decisions. And do you think having that approach and that mindset was responsible for you and your chairman, David Gonski, being the only CEO and chairman to survive? I think it helped. I mean, look, we had our set. We had no, I don't know if anybody's done account. I mean, we, we had a similar series of bad things that had happened under ANZ as opposed mm. to others. So it wasn't that we were immune from criticism or mistakes or bad bad outcomes. I don't know what the others did. I don't know what their, what their mindset was going in. Mm-hmm. I just know that it gave us a sense of grounding and actually in a funny way it de-stressed the whole thing because, mm-hmm. you know, before going on, I was like, look, I, I'm not here. I'm just here to tell the truth, to, to, to say, give my opinion on things when asked, my view, and to be helpful. Mm-hmm. And I, that idea, I'm not going to defend the indefensible. I'm just going to, you know, give my perspective as an experienced person in my field and, you know, based on the um, work that I've done, to uncover what happened. I think it probably did. I mean, David and I would speak every, I mean, we, you know, just during that period we spoke sometimes every day yeah. uh, just to make sure we kept going back to those sort of basics. Mm. The heat of the battle, and it does feel like that. It does feel like a battle. It feels like you're under massive stress, right? Sure. It's so easy to revert to some sort of defensive mindset. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Or, to, or to be completely overwhelmed mm. um, as well. And so being able to just sort of, you know, hey, that's not what we're here about. So yeah. it's okay. For our listeners, Shane, could you give us a brief overview of your career and how you came to become CEO? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a series of strange events, really. I never set out to be CEO of a bank. I didn't even start, I didn't even set out to start working in a bank. I started work, I did a commerce degree. Purely on the advice of an English teacher of mine, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was good at school. You know, I was kind of good at English and those sorts of things. My English teacher, I thought I'd be a school teacher or whatever, and she convinced me uh, very strongly. She was very influential in my life to do commerce. And so I did. And um, I didn't want to be an accountant. 
So I did all the other stuff, you know. And look, at when I ended up, my very first job was as a stockbroker, actually, and I hated it. It was horrible. I, I, I was a floor trader, one of those people who goes down mm-hmm. and yells in a pit. And um, I really disliked it. Now I can reflect back and realise that I worked for a really bad person. I worked for a bully. I didn't know that. I thought that was normal to be yelled at and sort of have things thrown at you. <laughs> um, so I became found it really stressful, and I literally couldn't cope with it anymore. It was only after six or nine months, whatever. So I left. I couldn't do it anymore. And I ended up. A friend of mine saw a job ad for a bank called Citibank. This is in Auckland, in New Zealand, where I grew up. And they were looking for trainees. And so I applied and I got a job and, and I loved it. I went from one extreme to the other. I worked, I, I just fell in love with this company. You know, they were thoughtful about people caring. They they coached people. They gave people opportunity. Really, I loved it. I mean, I worked really hard, but I, I gave everything because I liked the place so much. So I sort of did that and I, they kept giving me more and more opportunity. And long story short, I ended up. I got to that age of 27 and all my friends were going to London and so I thought I would do the same thing. And when I went to City and said, look, I'm going to leave, I'm going to go to London, they were very much, no, you know, you can, we'll give you a job, you know. So I, they, they gave me a job and I went to London. And, and then my, 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 my father, I was there for, I thought I was going for a year and I ended up being five years. And then I got that dreadful phone call. My father um, had, was diagnosed with cancer and not given much time to live. So Again, I went back to say, I said, look, I've got to leave. I've got to go home to New Zealand. My father's dying. And, and um, they were like, no, you, you take as much time as you like. You come back when you're ready. Um, and I was like, wow. I, you know, like to me, to care like as an employee, to, and I wasn't very senior, but for, for my team to be able to do that, I was forever grateful for that. So I went back and I stayed with my father until he passed and then thinking about the world and my life, I didn't know what to do. And the bank rang and said, there's a job in New York. We'd really like you to do it. And in group strategy, um, working in head office with a team of, you know, three people. So I did. I went over there. And, and then again, a series of events got offered a job to go and run Egypt. I went to Egypt to be the country head, uh, et cetera. And then I ended up in Australia and, then, you know, in Hong Kong. So, I, look, it just sort of <laughs> evolved. And um, I... I left City after 20 years. It wasn't the company I joined anymore. The culture changed, actually, you know, to go back to that change vast. It wasn't the place that I recognized. This is after they'd done a big merger and everything. This wasn't mm. the place that I recognized. Mm. I still remember this. There was this trigger point. I can say it. I was, I'm in Hong Kong. I'm running this rather large business. We're doing a business review with the, with the CEO and the team in New York. And, um, you know, it's late. At, we're, we're, fair enough. We had to get up late. At, it's late at night because of time zones. We're there doing a report. And the team on the other side, on the video, like you're sitting there, we're sitting there reading the newspaper while we were doing this presentation. And I just went, that's it. I can't, I can't stay here anymore. <laughs> it's not what I joined. It's not the place that I loved because I did love mm-hmm. being there. So I thought I've got to get out. So we went back, we quit and um, I did, went back to the Middle East and worked in a, a private company for a while. And then um, the job at ANZ came up and I sort of, again, ANZ came here. I came to run institutional Got this opportunity to run the CFO six years ago. David Gonski asked me if I'd like to be the CEO. So it wasn't a plan mm. um, other than my plan was to keep having new experiences and to sort mm. of broaden my experiences and, and the things that I was doing. Yeah. Your dad was a, a builder in Auckland. What did you learn from your dad which applies to your role as CEO now? Well, dad was a very disciplined person. So, like, my father would get up early every morning and go to work and he loved his job. Like, he... He loved it. And, you know, I I learned that sense of um, sort of discipline. Uh, but he was like me. Like, he, you know, he would put in the hours, but he also was very protective of his, you know, 
family life, you know, holidays, weekends, all those things, spending time with us. So I learned those sorts of things. But I also learned that you have to, and I try to teach this to my own daughter, who's now thinking about what she's going to do. She's 17. It's way too early to be thinking about this thing. But, but you know, kids get pressured. What are you going to do? <laughs> um, to make sure that people, you know, that you do something that you actually enjoy and love because it is mm. something that's been a moment mm. time. And, and then the other thing is, you know, Dad was a, he was a building foreman, so he was kind of the boss on the building sites. And, you know, I, I used to do some work with him when I was at uni as a labourer. And uh, I just saw that, that, that coaching role. You know, he saw his job as, you know, because it was an apprenticeship role. You know, you had these mm. apprentices that you had to train and build. Them. Mm. And I saw the, the pride that he would have knowing that those, and in those days it was all men, that these young men would go on to do good things. Yeah. You know, whether it was with their firm or somebody else, that, that sense of, hey, I, I enabled that a little part in that career or I nudge that person to take that chance. Those are the things that I learned and that's what I apply here as well. I also uh, read that, uh, you know, when you were growing up, you were living in a garage while your dad and you presumably were helping to build a house. And Not me. No, I was a baby. I was born in the garage. So. <laughs> <laughs> my, 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 grandparents, my father's parents grew up in the Depression and they lost their house in the Depression. And so my father was the youngest of five children. Um, he grew up with this morbid fear of death. Like he was terrified of having a loan or a, or a mortgage. Um, and so when mum and dad got married, they bought this piece of land and dad built the, this little this, it was garage. It was going to be the garage, but he had it as a little house that we, you know, that I was born in. Uh, and, 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 and every dad would go off to work and every weekend he was building the house and that took a number of years. And then, when the house was, I don't know how, I can't remember how old I was. When, when we moved in the house, he turned that back into a garage. So that's, that was my, and, you know, as I said, my father, mum and dad only got, only had a loan or a mortgage, I think, when he was, well, not much younger than I am now, probably in his mid-50s, and that was to buy a boat. Right. Dad, <laughs> Alan thought, oh, you know, he got over this fear of debt and they borrowed a small amount of money to buy a little boat, you know, a little boat. <laughs> it's sort of ironical that you went on to be, be a banker, really, isn't it? Oh, it is ironic, but, it, but, it, but yes, but it, it also, I think, again, it goes back to that sense of purpose. I'm, I mean, I, I understand, mm. not personally, but I've grown up to understand the harm that debt can do. And, yeah. you know, I, I see that, you know, I worry about, things that I see in the marketplace today, you know, certain products and things that look very exciting and, and you know, may have, may, you know, if used well, may be okay. But I see a lot of the financial services, you know, abused and the real harm that that does to people. And he was graphically showing to spend less than you receive, wasn't he? That was a, a wonderful listener that, which, uh, you know, is now part of the DNA of uh, ANZ. Yes, exactly. Mm. If you believe like we do that a leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together, you may be interested in these three free resources we've provided at our website, factorc.com.au. The first one is the We Care Credo poster, and this contains the mindset and values of teams that prize self-care, crew care, and red zone care. 
The second resource is a poster called How to Support a Teammate in Distress. And this provides easy to follow instructions on how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the Are You OK conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help that they need. And the third resource is a Building a Mentally Healthy Culture Checklist. And this provides items to think about before you launch an initiative, how you do a great launch, and then thirdly, how to keep the momentum going following the launch. These three free resources can be found at factorc.com.au. What did you learn from your time in, uh, in Egypt? Well, first of all, I loved it. I, I lived there twice. So the first time I lived there for three years, I was the country head of city. I was 34, I think, or something. I was quite young. And I, I went off to this place. I'd been there on holiday. I'd done a backpacking trip around seeing the sites, but I'd never, you know, never went there. Well, I mean, it's just, I'm, I come, you know, I was from Auckland. In New Zealand, when I grew up, was a population of, you know, 2.8 million people. There I go to Cairo. Now I'd lived in London and York and there, but there was Cairo in a city of 20 million or something even then, you know, um, and all the chaos and the colour and all the that that's there. I mean, I loved it. I just thought it was amazing. It was a great experience. Um, and what I learned with the team, you know, I go in and I'm reasonably, uh, young, um, and I'd never done it before. <laughs> and the job description, I remember the guy, one of the guys who was the vice chairman of the bank, this guy, Bill Rhodes. Bill was a sort of a bit of a legend in banking, and he would write you this letter. And it was a little one page, I only had it about that long. Basically, what it said was, don't screw up. That's basically <laughs> what it said. Like, you know, like you're in charge, there's lots of people to ask advice from, you know, your job is to build and, you know, protect and grow that sort of franchise and don't screw up. Um, which was a pretty good message, actually. And mm. so I just learned a lot. I, I learned because I had to, I didn't have a manual. I'd never done it before. I had to sit down with a, a piece of paper and figure out with the team, meet the team and articulate a strategy. So that's what it taught me. It taught me that was the first job I think I'd had probably where I had to figure out things for myself rather than executing somebody else's plan. Mm. So, I, yeah, I loved it. And it's also where you met, met your wife, right? Yes. Actually, I should say something. They used to have a saying at, at City, and I have the same one here, is that the saying was that the best job you'll ever have in your like your career is your first country head job. Mm. And it's true. And the reason is it's the first when you're a country head, it doesn't matter big, small, or indifferent country. You're in charge of everything. You know, you're dealing with regulators, with customers, with staff, with premises issues, with health and safety problems, with, you know, I all like the the the, the variety. Is immense, and that's why people uh, really love it. Yes, I did meet my wife there. I um, my wife is 100% Egyptian, but born in Saudi. Her father was a doctor. Uh, born in Saudi Arabia, and um, grew grew up most of her uh, went to school, boarding school since she was 12 in the US. So American accent and a bit. And she'd gone back to live in Egypt to sort of rediscover her roots, if you will. And she worked for USAID there. Uh, aid agency. She's a development economist. So yeah, I met her there, and then we moved to Australia and and, and other places. Yeah. And in Egypt, you just can't escape the, the history there, can you? It just oh. is so profound. What did um, you do? You look into that because I know you have a bit of a buff around history. What? How did you? How did you try to um, understand what went on there? <laughs> well, that's what I did with my weekends. I would just. I was. I. I I had a bicycle and I ride around. I was probably a bit, it was probably a bit irresponsible, but I used to ride around and I really got to know the city extraordinarily well. Um, and what's amazing about Egypt, like a lot of those great cities of the world, is this, it's this layer cake of history. I mean, you know, depend, you know, 
it's just layer upon layer. You know, you go obviously all the way back to the ancient Egyptians, but the whole Islamic history, and then you've got the Mamluks through the Ottoman Empire, and then even more recently with Nasser and all these other. So there's quite, there's just layers and layers of history. Um, and I found all that really fascinating. I mean, it's a good lesson in some sense of that things don't change. Mm. <laughs> I mean, mm. what's remarkable about all that history is that things don't change. <laughs> like the basics, the way that these great civilizations organized themselves, um, you know, making sure there were, you know, people had work to do and things to get done. There was a sense of having, you know, time off, you know, whatever that might be. We, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the importance of social gatherings, you mm. know, festivals, sports, even though they've changed, that whole idea of community, you know, whole idea of giving something to the greater good. So all those things haven't really changed. Just the way we go about them has changed. Yeah, yeah. I find that quite grounding in a funny way that, you know, um, as I say, the fundamental needs of life have, are not dissimilar or haven't really changed over that time. The needs, you know, for shelter and family and connection and community and, um, and advancement in the sense that, you know, you want every, people want better for their children. Yeah. Bank, it's our question of, you know, what's our role in and how do we, how do we enable those things for people? I saw a graphic illustration of that. Uh, you know, we've been through this pandemic and we think, uh, you know, poor us, never happened before. Or that's what we tend to think. But um, I went to a conference a couple of weeks ago at the Q station in um, in Sydney. It's near Manly, but it actually was the quarantine station where all the ships, when they came in, all the passengers had to go there and there was this big um, sandstone wall where people had written what time they arrived, and there was one there, 1918, I think it was a remembrance boat, and they were there for the flu, <laughs> the Spanish flu. So, uh, you know, there's many examples, isn't it, how uh, history repeats itself. Absolutely. And, you know, um, it's a good lesson, particularly as a bank, you know, like as I we, we mentioned before, there's always change, there's always a crisis, there's always something happening. I, we've gone through an extraordinarily a period of calm, actually. If you really stand back and think about greater history, mm. you know, over the last, you know, I don't know, 20, 30 years, on a relative basis, we've had this period of great peace around the world, right, and stability and economic growth and globalisation and connection and all of that good stuff. I mean, there's been bad things happen, but it's been ex- on, a, on, a, on a historical basis <laughs> extremely calm. The reality is we all then started to think that was normal. Yeah. And actually, in reality, it was abnormal. Now, I'm not saying it will go back to chaos, but mm. history is littered with war, disease, famine, flood, earthquake, you know, a pandemic. And so, you know, I think, and the lesson there is always, you know, it's a bit of a Boy Scout thing, right? Be prepared. And, and you know, like, how do you make sure that you never, it goes to my point, you're never going to predict the future. Yeah. Um, all you can do is be prepared. Yeah. And you have to be prepared as a company, but you have to be prepared as an individual as well about this whole idea of resilience and what happens when when the world when the sort of world falls apart for you, whatever that might be, either as an individual or family or a community or a country or whatever, what do you do? And how do you cope with those things? Because it will happen. I think that's the point. I think you have to have this almost this inevitability about these crises, individual ones and and national ones, they happen and they happen with remarkable regularity. So you've got to figure a way to manager i've been reading recently uh, ray dahlia's book principles and he's yeah. he's a real 
fan of history as well and just saying, you know, that uh, there's so much that has happened in the past which is uh, relevant now. So, um, yeah. Well, I know. I, I, I agree. And I'm not, I'm certainly no expert, but the sort of the more you read history, the more contemporary it always sounds. Mm. You, know, you read these stories and you're like, this is so contemporary to the things we're living through um, today. I read that um, one of your favourite books to give away is What the All Blacks Can Teach Us About oh, yeah. Business and Life. Yeah. Why do, you, why do you like that book so much? The book Legacy. Look, it's not, you don't have to be a rugby fan to like it. It's actually about culture and purpose. Mm. And it starts with a great line when the All Blacks have gone through this tough period of time and the, um, the coach or the manager of the All Blacks said at the time, um, we have to remember that good men make good All Blacks. And so it's all about character first. Like, and so they went through this sort of cathartic moment of realising, and it's all about we're not going to tolerate bad behaviour. You, you, you kind of have to believe in the culture first and, and, and you know, so good, good men make good All Blacks. And I think that was the point. And then the book just sort of goes through how, they, how that manifests, like the rituals, the belief, how they've embodied that idea over generations within that team. It's not the same team. Like they've obviously had multiple players and captains and all that other stuff. And it, I think it's just a good reminder. Same thing. We, we use it because it's a good reminder in, in terms of our purpose as well. Mm. You know, good people will make good bankers. And if, you, if, you're, if you're a good person and you're based in that sense of purpose and values, we, the rest we can figure out. You know, unlike the All Blacks, most people can, you know, work at a bank. Most people can't be an All Black, I guess. But, you know, we can teach you all the other stuff. I think that's the other point about this is mm. let's, not, let's not get too ahead of ourselves it's not that hard it's not rocket science you know like we can teach the banking bits but what we can't really teach is character and and culture and so you know increasingly a little bit like that growth mindset work increasingly when we're looking for people we're looking for people really based on their adaptability their curiosity their mindset their values as opposed to have you done this job before yeah sometimes you have to ask that sometimes you need to know people have to have you know some some time on the tools if you will but that sense of character is more important, and that's what that book's really about. Yeah. And are there any other books that have had a big influence on uh, you as a, as a leader? So, yes. So one's not a business book, and I, I use it. One is that book Moneyball by Michael Lewis, who, you know, then got made into a movie about baseball. That book was quite eye-opening for me, and I like all his books, so they're all well-written. Um, that book is actually sort of related, which is, don't look for the hero players. Mm. Look for the people who actually get stuff done and actually break down the, like, break down and, under, you know, so it's really a story about data. Mm. Understanding data, don't be seduced by people who are charming or the big the big personalities or those that are loud. And so I think that that was a really good thing, and I use that to really sort of remap a whole bunch of our work that we do in terms of thinking through how do you, you know, at the end of the day in baseball, you need to get people to home base. <laughs> What's the <laughs> thinking? And, there's a whole bunch of things you need to do to get there. And if you break it down and say, how do we make sure we get people who are good at those things? I think that was really important to me. The other one is a, a book by a guy called John Doerr, who's one of the you know, founders of the VC world in, in the Valley, who's you know, is an investor in most of the startups. And it's called Measure What Matters. And that book is, again, sort of similar. It's like this idea of measure what Are you really sure about what you're trying to achieve? Mm. Getting goals that are actually relevant to that and then breaking it down you know are you measuring what actually matters not mm. things that just happen um and i think that's important so for example in a bank in a bank there are so many variables if we just said measure revenue for example mm. well, there's so many factors that go into that that are out of our control 
the level of interest rates, you know, the house prices, blah, blah, blah. All those things influence well, I can't do anything about them. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got to measure what matters to us. Like, and again, from our purpose perspective, but also things that we can control. So those mm-hmm. are that book also, and, you know, I've literally got, I've got about 200 of them sitting out there because whenever whenever somebody gets promoted to a senior rank, and I, I send them that book um, with a note talking about, you know, for them to sign up, find out what matters in their role and make sure that they are really focused on those 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 right outcomes. I uh, put up on LinkedIn on Friday that um, I was going to be interviewing you and uh, ask if any people had questions. And... Um, and a lady called Sela Eka, she's in the technology technology division, and she asked, we all want to come to work and deliver what matters whilst working with, for people who care, what advice would Shane give us as leaders to build a caring culture? Well, first of all, it's got to be authentic, right? <laughs> you can't create caring if you're not, if you actually don't care. So <laughs> that's <laughs> authentic. I think it's the most important thing, like, do you as a leader, do you actually care? Like, do and, and, and what do you care about? I think. And then I so that's one. And then two, I think it's about not not being shy about showing that care. Um, so for example, so a lot of people sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable asking people, are they okay? Are you okay? We were doing work with um Dylan Orcott, and Dylan was talking about, I did an interview with him. We we're talking about mindset coaching versus you know physical training and he was saying it's interesting isn't it if somebody says i'm going to the gym this morning we'll say oh good on you that's great but if you said i was seeing a psychologist they'd go oh my god what's wrong you you know something dreadful you know Mm. so it's kind of true and anyway the point it's a little bit like that with if you really do care then you have to exhibit it (laughs) as a leader you can do that and then i think you know going back to that what matters as a leader your job is to coach and develop people and and the way that you can do that and show that you really care is sometimes is, and many times it's to let them go mm. it's to actually push them into something bigger even if that's not a, it might be outside the company mm. that might be okay that's okay mm. but if you really care about them you should be exhibiting um, and making sure that they're advancing and that they're doing better and they're thriving and that they're getting opportunities how important is empathy as part of showing that you care it's enormously important. I don't know that you can care. I don't. I don't know. I'm not a. I'm not. In, I'm not a psychologist. But I would imagine it's almost impossible uh, to be caring without some level of empathy. So I would have thought it was pretty, pretty critical. And that's why, for me, having a breadth of experience helps because I, I personally find it easy to be empathetic to people when I've had some personal experience of that. You know. Mm. So you know, for me. Having all those experiences in different cultures and places and different businesses, some are growing, some are shrinking, some are successful, some are failing. That gives me, you know, it, it enables me to be a bit more thoughtful and put myself in that other person's shoes because I've, you know, I've had a little bit more exposure to those things. Yeah, I recently interviewed um, Bob Chapman. He wrote a he wrote a book called Everybody Matters, and it's been an amazing success story, his business. It's a manufacturing business in the US, which has grown from $20 million to over $3 billion in turnover. And he's a real champion of, uh, you know, creating that caring environment. But what he what he talks about, he used to think that, um, you know, caring was talking with people, but what he finally really understood was it was empathetic listening and really making sure people felt understood. So, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's... Uh, I learned that in Egypt. I, you know, my first real job managing a team of any size, right, I used to run little teams of five or six people or whatever. 
here I am, I can't remember how many there were in Egypt, but, you know, hundreds, and, you know, I had a big team. And this sounds so ridiculous, but I there was this point where I, I remember uh, saying to somebody, oh, like, I just can't get my work done because my people are always in my office wanting to talk, <laughs> um, right? And that sounds silly, It was that, but there was that epiphany moment when I realised actually that is my job. <laughs> uh, and that it was my job uh, to just listen sometimes. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, sometimes to give advice or coaching or whatever, but sometimes actually to keep my mouth shut and just not that people weren't looking for a solution. They just wanted to be able to, you know, articulate and and talk through an issue with somebody. Um, yes, that was quite a um, learn, big learning for me. What, what approach do you take when someone that reports to you has really let you down? How do you go about having that discussion? So I'm probably not very good at it, uh, to be perfectly honest. So I don't like conflict as a general observation, so I'm not good at those sorts of things. But first of all, so I do it myself. I don't delegate those difficult conversations, even though personally I'd much prefer to. Like it's my personal would be to avoid those things. So I, I know that's I've got to deal with those. Um, and I look, I just be as honest and, and as transparent as I can be and as calm as I can be in explaining to those people. Like anybody, I get angry at things. I don't generally, I wouldn't, and I'd probably have a temper at some, you know, my at times, but not, not, not really, not in those sorts of situations. Like it's it's other things that irritate me or I get angry. But when it's something important like that, because clearly, look, if somebody's let me down, these are somebody that I chose. So I, you know, like I feel personally invested in this person. I chose them to do something in my team. Mm. And if they've let me down, I take that really personally as well. I just try to deal with it as calmly as I can. Mm. I also remember there's that great story, the um in the right stuff, you know. It's the guy, Chuck Yeager, test pilot, you know, he's flying some sort of supersonic jet. And one of the mechanics, one of the engineers had put the wrong fuel on the plane and the plane nearly crashes, right? And he has to land it in this, you know, very dramatic way. He survives. He gets out of the plane, walks into the hangar. Apparently it's a true story. Walks in the hangar and says, I want to know who put that fuel in my plane, right? And this guy puts his hand up and he said, right, from now on, you're the only person who ever puts fuel in my plane. <laughs> I know you will never make that mistake ever again. Now, <laughs> that's sort of what you try to do as well to <laughs> Because, you know, we're trying to be a learning culture to say when, when you've let me down, it doesn't mean we throw you out. It means, hey, you, we, we have to make sure that we're learning. We have to take it as a learning opportunity to say, hey, have, do we understand what's happened? Like you need to be authentic. Like, uh, yes, I get it. Take accountability. And then, uh, you know, it's, sort of, it's okay because we've all done that. We've all made those sorts of mistakes. I read uh, a report last year. It was a report called Return on Action put together by Atlassian and PwC, and it showed that the number one issue, the societal issue that employees now care about is mental health. Does that surprise you? Yes and no. So no because, you know, it does appear to be the sort of zeitgeist of the time. It's something that we talk about a lot. So no, it doesn't. I think people are under enormous stresses. In life, I, you know, I see them with my daughter, and I, you know, her friends at school, and they're just sixteen, and I see the pressures that we put on kids and all those things. So no, it doesn't. And clearly, it's become something that's okay to talk about. And I think that's been a remarkable shift in my sort of professional life. Mm. I don't think 
I can't remember. People wouldn't have even spoken about it. Mm. Uh, you would have it would have been a weakness, right? To say people, yeah. you can't cope, you can't cut it, kind of thing, right? Um, so I'm not surprised by that. Um, but then I sort of I am surprised a little bit in the sense that I'm sure it's always been there. Maybe maybe just we've given people permission to mm. uh, talk about it. Maybe and maybe and things like Are You Okay Day and others have sort of made it okay. It's mm. almost like. Yeah, it's not a. It, it goes to that point that Dylan Alcott's right. It's not. It's not. It's not seen as a, a weakness to mm. say, "Hey, I, I, I'm struggling with this issue." And I think we've also brought in the definition, right? I mean, if somebody had said, yeah. "I'm trying to think," if 20 years ago somebody said, "I've got a mental health problem," you probably would have thought, "Oh my God, this is you know they've, mm. got, you know, they've got some serious mm. psychological issue. You know, they're bipolar mm. or they've got delusions or something rather." So I think we've broadened the mm. definition of what we mean as well. Do you have any way of measuring the mental health across ANZ, mental health employees? Well, we ask. So we ask. We don't ask, you know, uh, directly. It's a bit hard for people to self-diagnose. But we ask those questions about people feeling stressed and people feeling resilient and do they feel they're able to get their work done and do they feel that they've got supportive colleagues and all those sorts of things. So we, you can sort of get a sense of the general health of an organisation. We have um, one of the great things at ANZ, and I, it's nothing to do with me, it's just part of the culture, is... Um, we have a number of these grassroots teams, you know. It, it sort of started with things around um, sort of the um, various ethnic, not ethnic, well, not ethnic groups, but things, you know, it's various sort of minorities, if you will, yeah, mm. looks up together. That's actually developed. So we have all these now groups, and one of them is around um, mental health and well-being, and so people feel that they can talk to each other about those things. But that we measure it more on just uh, through our surveys, which we do quite often. Yeah. And obviously we measure the other things. And, again, I'm not saying they're all to do with mental health, but you measure all the things that you would do about, you know, um, sick leave and turnover rates and all those other bits and pieces, which are indicators about the general health of a, of a, of a company. Yeah. I understand that you're a bit of a David Bowie fan. Oh. <laughs> what do you like about David Bowie? I just like that. It's probably not just David Bowie. It's that time of music. You know, I... So perhaps, I mean, my parents didn't play that sort of music, but that was what I grew up with listening to. And um, I don't know, I, I like songs that have meaning, if you will. And I, <laughs> everybody likes a nice tune, but I sort of like the ones with really interesting lyrics. And I like the fact, and I went to the, he, there was that great exhibition of his recently where they put all the, you know, his costumes. And the that I found the most interesting was the sort of a songwriting technique, which was you know, write all these random ideas and cut up bits of paper and reorganise. I don't know. I, I just thought, you know, it's like everything. At some point in your life, certain musicians, you feel this that you feel this speaking to you, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? As a as a like, he's not the only one. I'm, I'm a big Crowded House fan, and I that, like Crowded House to me. I feel like they wrote every single song for me. I like. I really understand in my mind what, what they're saying. Yeah. So me yeah. is why I like those sorts of musicians, or, or Billy Joel's another one. I feel like I know I understand what he's talking about. Yeah, I guess all those um, ones you mentioned also showed a real capacity to evolve with time, didn't they? Especially Bowie, like talk about the reinvention man, but he just got better and better. Amazing. Yeah, and obviously some huge level of – the other thing I love about those stories of people, and I use them for my daughter as well, this level of resilience they have and, and faith that they're going to do, you know, meet their dreams, like they don't give up. And, you know, even in adversity when they get told they're no good and <laughs> they fail and, and their ability to sort of pick themselves up literally mm -hmm. off the floor 
yeah. and, and, and keep going. And then obviously those, that it, it, I mean, I never thought about it before, but perhaps it's a little bit like that growth mindset. It's the same thing. Here, you're talking about the ability to evolve. Here are people who are thinking ahead, understanding the trends, mm. the future, and are willing to experiment, you know, so are not just sort of stuck in a one genre or one kind of thing. Um, yeah. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Mindset continue to do that because it must be so easy to give to 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 sort of give up and say, well, I've done it. And <laughs> I find those those are also interesting things. Like I see it in our business life with a lot of our customers who are enormously successful. You do I ask it is interesting to understand what motivates them. Because yeah. sort of they've won, if you will. You know, like whatever level of, you know, they they did whatever they set out to do. They've, you know, maybe they've made a lot of money, maybe they've been the pinnacle of their career, but their ability to want to keep going yeah um, i find that really quite remarkable yeah what uh, advice would you give to a, a new manager that came to you uh, their first job was manager and they say i want to have a team culture that champions both care and high performance what advice would you give to them so i would tell them that teams teams bond and perform by doing work together right you're not a team if you just delegate things to a whole bunch of people and you meet every now and again to add the stuff up right so you have to create a so you, I think that person has to create a common purpose. Like what is our purpose? We understand the purpose of the company. What's our role and our purpose as a team? Um, so that's I think it's really important to sit down with I've done it with my team. Be really clear on who's doing what. Once you've got that purpose, what's our job to do as a team? And then what's our relationship? What are things I'm going to do? What are things you're going to do? What are things we're going to do? So I think clarity of those things are really important. That's, I think, um, making sure we invest a lot of time in my team, we did consciously from the beginning, of being together, like, you know, because it's about caring and making sure there is time for the, you know, the morning teas, the dinners, the whatever it is that actually are just, we do actually um, have those social connections, which is ultimately also about caring for those individuals as well. And then finally, I think it is really important, particularly as the leader, as I mentioned, I think an important part of caring is thinking about not what's what's good for you <laughs> as the leader, but what's good for the people in the team. Like, is it is it time for those people to leave the team and be promoted, or how are you making sure you're in, you're investing in what's good for them uh, as well? Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to your twenty year old self back in Auckland? Uh, one or two years, just yeah. at uni, I guess. What advice would you give that twenty year old self? Oh, look! I probably I'd probably tell myself to be more courageous, but I because I'm quite shy and I'm 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 a bit of an introvert and I don't consider myself a risk taker. I probably would have told myself that, but then I sort of go, well, I did I did do all those things. I did take all those risks, so I sort of surprised myself. But I think that I think taking more chance on myself, um, you know, I, yeah. That would have been my advice then. Now, again, I, I'm being extraordinarily lucky. I don't sit here and regret anything or sit there, oh, if only this I could have done better. I Look, I, you know, this is an amazing life that I've had, so I, I don't regret anything. But I probably could have been a little bit more self-confident and been a little bit more willing to take a chance on things. But as I say, it all worked out pretty well um, and no complaints from, um, from me. Yeah. That's a very common message that, uh, you know, the caring CEOs I've interviewed have, have had, just to back yourself, <laughs> have a go. I remember, you know, as I said, I get to meet amazing people on this job. You know, we've got customers. They're really, I love hearing the stories. And I was saying to some people, you know, it's interesting. 
when you look at when they are towards the end of their careers or whatever and they're reflecting on things, they never tell you, they never say, oh, you know, in hindsight, I was too courageous. <laughs> right? They never say that. <laughs> um, they always say, you know, in hindsight, I, gee, I should have been more courageous. Mm. You know, I should have been more decisive on things. Yeah? Mm. It's never the other way around. And mm. so I think that is a good reminder <laughs> to be courageous <laughs> and, and, and back yourself in your own uh, judgment. Thank you so much for your time and uh, we've covered some great areas and I know there'll be lots of um, lessons for people who uh, are part of this. Listen to it. Thank you very much and I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. Thanks for joining us.